This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Welcome everybody to Breaking Banks Europe. I'm Francesca Liberti, and today we are going to deep dive into our open innovation series with an episode that will explore the different ways of collaborating between banks and innovative solutions. And I'm saying multiple ways because actually today we have the pleasure to have uh, two one-on-one interviews with exceptional guests coming from two different banks and uh, quite different size uh, um, and uh, maturity and therefore a different approach to, to open innovation. But without any further ado, let me introduce you the first one, the first of our guests. And it's a pleasure to have here David Rasson, former lead of the Innovation Center in ING Belgium. David, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, no, uh, good to be here. Thank you. Great. So, first of all, uh, David, during our um, previous conversation, I had the, uh, the chance to, to look a bit into your profile and the, the activity that, of course, you were doing at ING. Um, and you were actually one of the most successful, I can say, amongst the, the banks innovation labs. Uh, you mentioned around 50% POC converted into commercial contract, which is quite impressive, I have to say. How were you able exactly to build such an healthy pipeline uh, and getting all the business fully involved? Um, thank you for the compliment. I think indeed um, it is a nice um, achievement, even if uh, maybe I should start with the comments. Uh, the 50% never was really a target. And ING, and I do even think it shouldn't be uh, to avoid that you start to reverse engineer towards <laughs> that target. Um, because after all, what really matters is probably not the number of commercial contracts uh, as a result from the POC, but rather the impact that um, these contracts are making. And that takes time, I, but it is a good result. And I think it's a good starting point because in order to achieve impact, obviously you need to have uh, more than one file in in uh, coming out of your of your funnel. Now, to really answer your question, um, I think honestly, um, it is hard work. Uh, that sounds basic, but I think it's uh, yeah a little bit the combination of all the things that most people uh, will tend to agree with. Maybe number one, uh, I would say, uh, because I still see it happening, it's not to fall in love with a solution, chasing for a problem. So I think what is key uh, if you're in this game is to start with knowing the top problems the business wants to solve in your incumbent bank or the opportunities they want to unlock. And of course, yeah, that's potentially limiting your uh, open mind to, to things that you don't know you don't know. But the majority of what you're looking for um, should be a conscious decision based on yeah, uh, in-depth knowledge of what is top of mind in the business that you're serving from an innovation uh, department point of view. I think number two, um, also a no-brainer, but I see it uh, too often not happening, um, is make sure you engage with all your stakeholders inside the bank. And that means that uh, you're trying to uh, yeah, align all the stakeholders to make sure that you're right from three different angles, the desirability, the feasibility, and the viability of your project. So the questions that you need to answer is, do we really want this? There, I think you need to ask your users. Second question is, can you do it? That's then probably typically to be discussed with IT and the support departments like risk compliance. And then the final and probably most important question is, should we do it? And that's then really targeting the, the buyer in the, in, the, in the bank, because these are the guys that need to be able to, yeah, uh, defend a budget and, and potentially build a business case, especially if it's incremental innovation. 
I think then the third remark I would like to make uh, leading to this 50% is probably uh, be very careful when you design your POC or pilot around the three axes I just mentioned and make sure there is no room for a doubt after the delivery of the POC. So make sure you have your critical assumptions clearly mapped out and that you know how success looks like um, during the POC so that in fact, it's it's a logic consequence if the POC is successful to continue or not. And obviously, last remark, uh, I would say make sure you have the right resources in place. And with resources, I mean uh, people with the right skills and especially the right mindset, but also having dedicated processes, a network of mentors in the bank, strong relationships with uh, yeah people in support departments, and probably most importantly, make sure you have strong buy-in from C-level. I, and not just uh, what you typically see during the demo day, but um, yeah, in uh, in ING when I was working there, we when I was working there we involved the C level persons already in the process of selecting the problem to be uh, to be um, uh, solved. Uh, obviously, also in the selection of the startups, the use cases to work on, and the design of the POC, and they were also part of the evaluation of the POC included priority setting and ring fencing budget afterwards. And that's all on itself, I think, very common sense, but I've rarely seen no. all these elements uh, being taken into account altogether. But uh, so as mentioned, no silver bullets, but I think this is uh, the result of hard work and how to do these things, I think. Well, yeah, definitely. You gave us a, a complete recipe, I have to say, with a lot of different uh, flavors in it and um, I mean it's uh, I've, I've spent six years in the Netherlands uh, actually working there and I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Netherlands Belgium area and I have to say that this approach is something that it's actually quite familiar to me so it's uh, perfectly you know straightforward starting from the problem not from the solution not getting in love with the with a, an empty probably idea it's Really, uh, an amazing approach, David. Um, so let's then talk a little bit about the struggles on the other side, because right now we have seen a quite a perfect example of how things should work. But I'm sure that from your experience, you have also seen a lot of uh, um, pitfalls within the process. And especially I was thinking that we are talking about two different uh, words trying to communicate. So from one side, a bank with a big legacy and a lot of hierarchy inside. And on the other side, uh, a startup that has uh, quite some uh, different background. So what's your experience with that? Uh, um, how did you manage to deal with uh, all this uh, intrinsic diversity and, and try to benefit from one another? Well, I think I'm not sure if the problem is... Um communication because you were referring to communication um i think maybe in the beginning of the the fintech wave and then we are talking about i guess about 10 years back a I, I think there was a little bit competition between fintechs because the initial idea was that fintechs were going to unbundle banks yeah. well that clearly didn't happen uh, and it's not going to happen and i think we are now probably seeing a well we've we've been through through the phase of uh, collaboration. So I think there, uh, the fintechs were clearly on speaking terms with the incumbent banks. So communication was not, I think, the real issue. I think both sides of the equation have understood, um, yeah, what they can contribute uh, and bring to the table. And I think banks clearly they have, most of them at least have a, well, a strong brand and a, at least a stronger brand. Uh, then most of the startups, I think they have the channels, they have launching capabilities, they have money, uh, and, and uh, some of them are even willing to invest that money. And I think from a startup, it's clear for the for the banks what they can bring to the table. It's the disruptive ideas, latest technologies, and they are typically mostly excellent in one particular thing versus the banks, which are at best, I would say, average or good enough on, on many things. So I don't think... Communication is a problem. There's clearly a willingness to collaborate. I think the, the, the problem is probably a little bit deeper when the collaboration really starts. And, and when you see how difficult it is to practice what both sides of the equation are preaching and, and executing on, um, on the collaboration. And then I think, yeah, there are still plenty of things that 
uh, are very difficult when you really start to collaborate. And I'm just giving here randomly a couple of things. It's like on, on data. I think there are not that many partnerships these days that are not targeting to do something with the data of um, the bank, whether it's customer data or something else. And then typically that's uh, assuming that the quality of these data is okay, that there's a willingness to share. But what you see too often is that the the famous data lakes often look like a data swamp instead of a lake. And uh, it's super difficult to 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 get the right data in the system of um, of the fintech if they were willing to do that at all. Similar discussions on infrastructure. I think the cloud or not the cloud. I think every bank is talking about it, but let's face reality. There's still a lot of back and forth with regards to adopting cloud technologies. Another discussion is the build or buy discussion, because even if you are successful with your POC, there are always people um, from inside the bank that still think that they they can build this uh, themselves. And obviously they can, but the real question is whether they should uh, build it themselves. Cycle times, which are notorious and provoke side issues, because um, if it takes too long, there's one thing that I know for sure, and I can guarantee you that the, the fintech will need to manage reorganizations, change in strategic courses, bring new people on board on the bank side, because people tend to move, and so on, and so on. So I think communication and willingness to collaborate, uh, that's pretty much okay these days. I think uh, the difficulties are still... Uh, in the execution of uh, the POC, when you really start to to hit some walls. Um, and then the positive thing is, I think, for the bank, hitting these walls is an important catalyst um, for structural improvements because uh, the smart banks uh, don't hit the walls, or at least not mm-hmm. the same walls twice. But it can be very painful, obviously, for, uh, for a startup. But uh, if they can overcome them, it can unlock extra potential beyond the initial scope, I would say, of the collaboration. And they can bring that experience as well to other banks that they are targeting. Of course. And in terms of collaboration, you are talking, uh, I mean, a lot of about the fact that, of course, there is willingness to collaborate. And I'm sure in, you have a lot of uh, good examples of that. Can you mention uh, some of the partnership uh, partnerships that you, you have made uh, within your time in, uh, in ING and uh, something that worked pretty well? Um, yes, I think, um, well, we did... Um, over the past years, because I was uh, running the program for four years, I think we onboarded in between 20 and 25. Um, so about half of them were successful, as I mentioned. So I think there's plenty uh, to choose. But if I need to pick one, uh, it would be the partnership we did with a early stage company from the UK called Exate, active in data protection. And why do I pick this one? Uh, because it felt like it was really a home run. Why did why did why do I feel like it was a home run? Because yeah, it was scouted by our colleagues in London, and then we did from Brussels a POC with the financial markets team. Afterwards, uh, the POC was successful, and it turned into a pilot on on group level for wholesale banking. And then these guys got a group contract uh, and they are now consumable as a service uh, for all business units and to make the home run complete. Um, we like them so much that we invested in them in their one of their funding rounds. So really, this was a great example of how collectively you can collaborate and, and really uh, leverage on all the potential you have in a big uh, company where you bring all the pieces of innovation together and all the all the segments from multiple business units. So um, that would be my favorite example. Yeah, definitely. And you were actually mentioning uh, at the beginning uh, um, about getting also your C-level involved uh, in the innovation process. And even now in your answer, um, I had the feeling that, of course, there is um, a corporate, a full cooperation between, uh, for example, in this case, uh, uh, your Brussels offices and the London team. Um, so my next question, it's actually about that, uh, because many times uh, I see uh, on paper, let's say, amazing innovation centers with a lot of uh, um, uh, interesting opportunities coming on their way. 
But on the other side, uh, there is some, there are some difficulties in getting the whole bank fully on board. So many times they have the feeling that they are just uh, a white fly uh, within a huge uh, organization. So how did you manage uh, or what was uh, um, so uh, particular in your case that made um, so easy, or maybe not, so you are going to tell us, to have the full bank on board uh, in your innovation process? I, I, I didn't say it was easy. I think it's, <laughs> it's always tough. And, and uh, also with the case that I mentioned, uh, there were a couple of moments where I thought that it was still going to go horribly <laughs> wrong. Uh, so uh, let me be very uh, transparent about that one. So it, it requires persistence, that's for sure. I think um, just to give you um, a couple of thoughts about your question. I think the, the first question you need to ask yourself um, to be successful, where do you position it? I think um, if it's incremental innovation, meaning doing existing things better, faster, cheaper, preferably 10 times, not 10%, mm -hmm. then I think it's uh, very important uh, to do it as closely connected as you can with the business. Uh, because if you're doing it in isolation, in a lab or whatever that is totally disconnected from the core uh, of your of your bank, you will have a very tough time afterwards to, to bridge it towards uh, the core of the bank. The opposite might be true for your more disruptive innovations, because if you're really doing cool stuff, really looking 10 years ahead, I think it's a very bad idea to do it from the core because then it will need to compete with running the core of the bank. And you know how this, this is going. Uh, we have this yearly painful exercises called budget cycles. It's always the first things that are stopped if there's pressure on the, on the budget. So I think for the disruptive things, it's better to protect it from the core and let the seat uh, grow um, into a viable company before you scale it and bring it back to the core at one point in time because uh, that needs to happen inevitably. That's one remark. I think the other thing that is very important, independent from the fact um, whether it's in the, the, in the business unit or in a separate uh, entity, I think there need to be very good connections because an innovation team on itself can't do this uh, without support of um, many, many people, whether it's experts in procurement or legal or cybersecurity or infrastructure people, it requires really um, a lot of a, a lot of colleagues in, in a bank that all need to believe in this and that all need to collaborate to bring successful innovation home. And that's, I think, um, yeah, I think the the, um, the evident um, answer. Uh, but there again, people need to be allowed to to work on things. And uh, yeah, and then maybe a last remark on on whether you should go through innovation labs or not. I don't think that this is the critical point uh, to be successful. I think success can uh, can happen without having innovation labs. I've seen successful partnerships with fintechs going straight uh, from the fintech to the business. To the business. Um, but the opposite can happen as well. It's not because you have a lab uh, that uh, it won't be a disaster. Um, and I think there are some indications to to make a distinction between the good labs and and well uh, the, the the bad labs. And uh, I'm I'm happy to share a bit uh, what I think should be red flags from a fintech point of view. If you see labs that are onboarding every year more than ten startups. I don't think you can digest this as a bank. Mm. So, to be honest, a, that would already be a red flag if I would be in a fintech. A second red flag for me would be if the program is run by an external party, included the scouting, because then how big is the involvement and, and uh, the skin in the game from the business? If it's physically and organization-wise totally disconnected from the core of the bank, that should be a third red flag. And I can go on. If you only see junior people with... Uh, with sneakers uh, <laughs> and ping pong tables all over the place and potentially dogs running around in, in the lab. That's all very funny. But honestly, <laughs> I do think it's a sign that uh, maybe you should uh, target another bank. Um, and uh, yeah, so that would be a bit my answer. Make the distinction between uh, yeah, the horizon of your innovation. Is it incremental or really disruptive? 
Um, and yeah, whether you go to a lab or not uh, is probably not the critical point uh, in our case. Uh, it wasn't either. Yes, of course. And, uh, you know, many times uh, uh, it happens that maybe the innovation center is more, allow me to say, it's more, uh, uh, it, it has a marketing plan instead of a real business connection. So that's probably uh, the red flag you were mentioning before. Um, but it, it shouldn't. Of course, because, yeah. yeah, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I do think no, it ahead, can make yeah. sense because I was in this position. I always said to the fintechs, a, you should enter, if there is an innovation team, use it and leverage upon it. But I always gave the recommendation to the fintechs, only discuss with me once. As of the second meeting, there should be somebody around the table from the business. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the, the innovation labs are actually there uh, in theory and <laughs> I hope in practice to serve the business. So uh, to go back to what you were saying at the very beginning, starting from the real problem. So if the business uh, um, underline a real problem, then there should be a startup able to solve it. But many times, again, uh, they go the other way around, which is, uh, as you said, uh, a big red flag for, for an innovation center and, and, and for a bank. So I have a very last question for you, but you actually uh, already mentioned some uh, some stuff. If you really want to um, summarize in three key factors uh, essential for a profitable collaboration, which uh, are going to be just to give a very last uh, three key points to our listeners. Okay. Um, well, building on the conversation we just had, I think... Uh, if you want to stay away, the, the first thing in order to be a profitable collaboration, the first recommendation is obviously to um, avoid wasting time. Um, so it means that from both sides, the bank need to be serious and not be in this uh, because of uh, what we call innovation theater. And I think the fintech has some homework to do as well, because there are ways to um, yeah, already uh, make a distinction uh, between, well, quote, unquote, good banks and, and bad banks when you do some due diligence, read annual reports, and you simply can ask a lot of questions to the banks as well uh, before you start engaging in a conversation. I think maybe a second remark um, I would make is to stop doing proof of concepts, but turn them, at least from a mindset point of view, in proof of values. I, and I know it's a detail, but I think it is important in uh, the context I described and how to carefully design a POC. A proof of concept is like it's it's working, but that's not enough. It uh, should deliver value. And so uh, don't do POCs, but do POVs. And then maybe a, a last tip I would do. And there are plenty of uh, people spending lots of time and 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 white papers on why things go wrong in fintech partnerships, and they are doing then post-mortems. And I would suggest to do it the other way around and start with a pre-mortem and have an honest conversation uh, with the bank, between the bank and the, the fintech on all the things that could go wrong uh, before you start, because I think it will open up uh, an honest conversation that is probably a good base um, to, to start your um, your collaboration with. That would be my top three um, uh, takeaways uh, for success. Thanks a lot, David. It was really a pleasure to have you here and uh, share your experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And I hope uh, I gave some insights on uh, how we have been doing this. Definitely. And stay tuned because we will get back uh, in a minute after a short advertisement break with our second guest, Joao Diaz from Novobank. Let's talk about the future of payments. Your Breaking Payments exclusive series is here, and we are ready to showcase how FinTech has deconstructed the payments industry and is rebuilding it seamlessly as an embedded experience for the client. Stay tuned for new episodes every month on Breaking Banks Europe. And here we are back to our Open Innovation series. Uh, so before the break, we got some great insights from David Rasson, former innovation lead at ING Belgium, 
And I am very happy now to continue our conversation moving to another bank and actually a completely different geography. So let me introduce you our second guest, Joao Diaz, Chief Digital Officer at Novo Banco. Welcome, Joao, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Francesca. So as I just said, you are, the, you are leading the digital innovation side of one of the largest banks in Portugal. So as first question, I would like you to share with our listeners how would you define uh, the Novo Banco's approach to open innovation? And I especially would like you to focus a little bit more on the changes you have seen, if you have seen any changes, of course, in the last few years, like in the pandemic years. Yeah, uh, Francesca, for us, open innovation as the concept of involving an open ecosystem to innovate is really the only way how we see innovation uh, at Novo Bank, given our scale. Um, we really need to be uh, completely open and incorporate everything that's going out uh, on out there. Um, we look at two uh, key branches in the in that ecosystem, if you will, and one is the, uh, of course, the startup fintech technology at large uh, kind of um, landscape, both in Portugal but even you know within Europe uh, as a whole, um, and then the other branch that for us is very important is you know our if you will, our local community of employees and clients. And um, I would say that uh, during the pandemic, um, the, both these branches um, have been more activated, if you will. In the, the, the whole fintech and technology startup scene, in, particularly in Portugal, has accelerated significantly during the pandemic, especially if you think about um, the movement around these kind of digital nomads that a lot of them ended up coming to uh, Lisbon and other cities in Portugal. And so we've, uh, we realize that we now have uh, even um, more interesting ecosystem uh, particularly in fintech in Portugal. And then the second one, the uh, employees, clients, community at large, uh, the pandemic, uh, of course, while uh, keeping everybody at home, um, actually allowed us to connect uh, these communities at scales that we weren't able to connect before. And so we've been doing, for example, uh, innovation um uh, programs um, within Novo Banco that actually mix uh, the uh, fintech ecosystem in Lisbon with our employees and, and customers. And, and we've been doing this really at scales that we couldn't have done before because we can uh, suddenly broadcast to thousands of people. We can uh, involve hundreds of people in sessions, etc. So it really, it has been the pandemic in that sense. Uh, of course, it has brought us a number of uh, problems, but it has brought us as well this acceleration in open innovation, we think. Yeah, and I believe it's kind of a, a general trend. I mean, uh, many um, uh, countries, they experience the same in terms of acceleration of the digital processes. But you mentioned something really interesting about the, the, um, uh, the new approach that you had to take in consideration with the specific case of Portugal because of digital nomads and so on. But we, we will deep dive a little bit into the Portuguese case uh, later in our conversation. And before, I would like uh, to ask you the other side of the matter, you know, you, I mean, you have definitely a complex task uh, while leading uh, the digital transformation in your in your bank. So I'm interested also in the pitfalls, you know, I mean, all the difficulties that you have incurred in uh, during the process. Can you share something with us around that? Yeah, well, I, I can, although I'm afraid 
uh, whatever you can share. (laughs) No, no, no. It really pains me to do this because the um, what I what I end up sharing after you know three years leading the the, the, this role, having this role in in Novobank, we said I ended up I ended up sharing a lot of cliches. Uh, because and, and reconfirming them, um, which is really um, uh, which is really interesting to to an extent, right? I mean, we have a legacy that needs uh, changing uh, in order to compete in the digital world, and this is this legacy is manifold. Uh, it is um, thousands of different products, is thousands of different processes, is technology. Uh, some of which uh, 20, 30 years old, is also a strong incumbent culture, right? If you think about our, the average tenure in our bank is 18 years old, 18 years, uh, sorry. So um, when, you, when, you, when you look at the task of uh, changing so many of these aspects, you end up uh, with a huge uh, complexity. Uh, and uh, and so uh, you end up having to navigate uh, many different complex disciplines, like how do you change technology while building new customer solutions, or how do you um, orchestrate multiple parts of the organization to enact change, or how do you build skills uh, while maintaining the strong knowledge of the bank, right? So generally, if you're if you're thinking about um, digital transformation, you're not uh, just trying to solve through a specific project or initiative. Suddenly, you need to be thinking across multiple dimensions yeah. uh, to, to, to change really how the bank operates in order to change the way the bank uh, competes in the market. Now, one thing also needs to be said is that uh, the legacy also comes with some upside, right? So we also have a relatively loyal customer base. We have a multi-channel distribution model with local presence that is, you know, very ingrained in the local communities. We have brand awareness with a balance sheet, right? There are a number of things that come with incumbency that are helpful. Uh, but, uh, but of course, the, the, the task of changing all the different elements of the legacy is uh, often quite daunting. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, uh, it's um, you are talking about uh, a, a huge entity um, that definitely needs to be um, put all up to speed. And I can imagine it's not it's not that easy because the, when we talk about uh, an innovation center or a similar department, of course, so we are talking about a small part of a bank, but a bank as a lot of different sides to be um, to be taken into account. So in the first part of the episode, we were talking with David uh, about the role an innovation center should have uh, in being actually this, so fully connected with the different department uh, uh, of the bank and not just be, you know, the, the kind of white fly within the organization itself. So actually be fully connected with the, with the actual business side. And I'd like to ask you a similar question, but with a, a different angle. So more focused on the um, customer side, because uh, at the end of the day, you have to serve your customers, right? So how do you make sure uh, you, from your um, uh, digital officer uh, role, how do you make sure you keep a consumer-centric kind of approach and not just uh, an innovation for the sake of it kind of approach? Because many times yeah. we see the marketing side of the innovation centers, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. No, of course, uh, totally. And it's uh, for us, it's, um, we've kind of designed the, the digital transformation for that. Um, and it starts really with with having a a, a strategy and a business plan that is grounded on whatever we're doing it needs to have an impact it needs to have an impact ultimately on the bank's you know 
ability to compete in profitability and economic model and so on. But in order to get there, uh, by definition, you need to have customers adhering to the solutions and to 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 whatever we're we're making. And so, uh, by design, our innovation needs to be something that customers pick up and and therefore the way we think about any new thing we put out there or anything that we start working on starts precisely with the customer problem what are we trying to solve uh designing for for customers and then uh, working through the customer um engagement and uh, pickup uh, process. And so it, it is really by design. If you think about our, if I think about our um, portfolio of initiatives, um, I would say the uh, more than 90% is focused on um, either uh, transforming existing customer journeys or transforming um, the principal channels of interaction or um, uh, introducing personalization uh, it's it's an it's those are initiatives where you can see the, the path to um, economic impact and the path to um, customer um, impact is quite clear it's quite obvious right uh, now there's there's still a 10% or so that we leave for more tentative uh, innovation where we are um, hypothesizing that it might have some impact, but we're not quite sure what it is uh, at first. Um, but as you can see, the great majority of our portfolio is directed towards uh, initiatives where we are to start with pretty sure that they're going to have a customer impact and therefore we need to design them straight from the customer problem back definitely and um you know talking about a, a consumer-centric kind of approach uh, uh, what you just said made me think about the impact that uh, some solution have on the consumer. Of course, you were talking about uh, changing, for example, the customer journey. And I can imagine that for um, you also need to take into account the reaction that this changing, these changes have on the consumer itself. Um, so most of the time, what I've seen is that the success of a solution um, comes uh, from the actual traction it can get from the, um, uh, the people. And I'm saying that because uh, uh, I'm Italian, but I spent a lot of years in the Netherlands. And I can tell the difference between the approach of the Dutch population, for example, towards innovation especially when you think uh, um, about the almost the full cashless society they have created because the people were actually welcoming it. So in this sense, I'm quite curious in understanding how do you see innovation in Portugal and uh, in your customer base especially. So do you think the population is ready to make some changes uh, and therefore be able to make a step forward into the innovation journey? Uh, yeah, look, first of all, I'm, I'm always a little bit careful of, um, of uh, characterizing <laughs> you know, yes, of course. Generally, the, the the societies, but the the Portuguese uh, society and, and the history, uh, recent history shows that it ha it has the ability to adopt new technologies. Um, in one very recent example, and and, uh, and you keep hearing that from. Uh, uh, from them is um, if, if you hear the the country manager of Revolut talking about mm -hmm. Portugal, um, he, he notes that Portugal is one of the countries where Revolut has the highest penetration 
in the market. Um, I'm not exactly uh, defending Revolut here, but it's just a, 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 it's <laughs> no, a it's note a fact, that I mean, uh, of course, yeah. it's a fact, and, it, and it's a note that uh, exactly the society tends to welcome uh, innovation and, and new players and so on. Um, also, in the past, uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, when the uh, ATM network in Portugal was created. Uh, it's one of the best um, and um, most capital uh, ATM networks in the world. Um, and back then it was an innovation and it was very well adopted in Portugal as well. Um, the, the, the issue over the last, um, I'd say, five to ten years has been uh, during the um, during the euro crisis, the, the sovereign debt crisis that that affected Portugal so much, was that um, the country as a whole, um, particularly the the financial institutions as a whole, uh, they they missed the opportunity to invest um, so much in digital solutions as in other countries. Um, so that's one thing that has slowed down if you will, the supply side of innovation in the market. Um, and that in turn uh, also kind of uh, didn't create attention to create demands in, in Portugal. The second thing to, to, to pay attention is given the size of Portugal, um, the, we don't really have the scale for this mm -hmm. kind of at scale uh, e-commerce players. If you think Amazon is still not in Portugal, it operates yeah. in Portugal uh, from Spain. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that creates an environment where e-commerce has a relatively low penetration. And then, um, and then you mentioned cashless, and I already started talking, uh, talked about the ATM network, right? So yeah. the, the, the ATM network in Portugal uh, actually makes it really easy to use cash in Portugal. Uh, and so it's actually that's one of the hardest things to change. Now the the, the pandemic actually created one of the most significant changes in terms of cash utilization. Um, and um, and over time, what we're seeing is that e-commerce is also is, is picking up. Yeah, and and uh, given the shifts in behavior of people, we start now to have the scale to uh, to have uh, proper players in. Uh, in the e-commerce side. So we're actually now seeing an acceleration of all of that. But there are some factors, as I was mentioning, that kind of slowed down a little bit digital banking innovation in Portugal. Yeah, and it's definitely also a fact that, um, uh, as we were mentioning before, um, uh, Portugal or, or the Portuguese government and the society, they have made some um, uh, investment or changes that are actually attracting um, digital companies in the country and especially in some specific cities. So I can believe also that the startup ecosystem is quite active lately. I mean, even my company, my company and Matteo's company are, are based in Portugal. The, the amazing Renata, who is managing, uh, uh, is behind the scenes of Breaking Banks, is actually based in Portugal. So um, I can imagine there is a lot of uh, um, sparkle around the, uh, the the startup sector. Um, so one of the of the last question I want to to ask you is about that. I mean, I can imagine that you see a lot of developments and startups that are approaching you. So how's exactly the uh, ecosystem in in Portugal, especially in the fintech sector? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, you're right. It's a thriving. It's really a thriving scene, and and it's really uh, exciting for everybody working in in digital, in te technology, and particularly in financial uh, technology. Um, I see. Well, first of all, it's a really broad spectrum of uh, startups uh, that come to Portugal and or that are originated in Portugal. Uh, and yes, fintech plays a big role in that uh, spectrum. Um, and within fintech, really, there are a number of um, different aspects. Uh, I would pick particularly two that I am personally very excited. I don't have the facts to know if these are the biggest ones or not, but I, um, I get a sense that they are really, really important. One is um, the AI, all the artificial intelligence uh, stuff around um 
fintech or uh, be it uh, solutions uh, that are very much focused on banking like uh, reg tech and um, fraud uh, detection and all of that and of course fizai is um, one of the one of the portuguese unicorns um, that is uh, that has been focusing on this and and at the core of fizai is data science and artificial intelligence and so it's really um, but like fizai there are a number of other companies that are starting up in this uh, in this area as well some of them completely focused on, on on fintech some of them with solutions that are anchored around fintech but they can brought into other sectors as well and then the other the other uh, uh, part that i am also particularly uh, excited and curious is the DeFi decentralized finance mm -hmm. landscape uh, I remember three years ago when I first came to or returned to Portugal to um, as the chief digital officer of Novo Banco, I did a tour around uh, startup uh, associations in Portugal and went to Braga. And in Braga, there were a number of kind of blockchain, um, cryptocurrencies, um, uh, starting kind of wallet, DeFi, uh, uh, crypto wallets, and 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 so on. And at that time, it, it felt very emergent, very uh, fringe. And uh, but now, three years passed, you can start really seeing how that is becoming really important. Um, and and again, a, a great example uh, that is uh, well known around the world is uh, a half Portuguese uh, unicorn called uh, Anchorage Digital. Mm -hmm. uh, that has just announced um, a few weeks ago like a big round of I have a few hundred million investment with a three billion evaluation. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's a there's an ecosystem around that that is really exciting. Yeah, and 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 we we have seen that actually also during the web summit, the all the the, the side events about blockchain and cryptos that were basically making the city even more lively. To be honest, um, so I have one very last question for you, uh, Joao, before closing up this episode, uh, and it's still connecting with the with the startup ecosystem. So. Let's assume I'm a startup and I would like to approach uh, Novo Banco to partner up. Which are the three key suggestions you want to give them? Yeah, this is a question I think a lot because I, uh, you know, I, I I actually try a lot to help um, a number of startups uh, approaching banks, um, and and this is by no way. Uh, uh, by no means a way of saying that the banks don't need to improve uh, at all. Uh, it's uh, we are horrible at working with startups, and precisely because of that, um, I have three uh, recommendations. Uh, the first one is um, first start by helping us understand the value for us. What, what's our business case uh, for using whatever solution you are developing or whatever product you're developing? Um, really understand our economics, be realistic about the order of magnitude so that we can really see the, the business case um, and, and see that in a way that is kind of uh, easy to demonstrate internally. The second one is um, help us with the process to engage with you, um, meaning we are, as I was saying, we are so clunky internally, often. The institutions, the large institutions normally are. Um, so if you have a clear, practical, step-by-step -step process prepared, um, it really makes our lives a lot easier. And, and not just any step-by-step -step process. Think about and you know what are the bottlenecks and learn through the sales cycles what are the typical bottlenecks? What are the typical issues, uh, obstacles that whoever you are talking to in the bank needs to kind of jump and, and create options to make it easy for that uh, stakeholder to, to, to jump those hoops? Um, you know, think about 
uh, all the compliance issues, all the security issues, all the uh, financial issues, etc., that one needs to uh, jump through. Um, and then the third one is, and it relates a bit with this, but it's it's very specific. Is make it super super easy to try it out, to do a proof of concept. Um, make it free. Think about you know the the, the finance approval processes that we need to go through if we need to spend money. Um, make it completely no-tech integration. Think about all the IT prioritization processes and all the kind of security uh, clearing processes and so on that are needed. And make it uh, possible to have very limited customer impacts to start with. Uh, again, think about uh, product approval processes and compliance approval processes. Right, so make it super, super easy to start with because once you have the foot in the door, then it makes the whole thing a lot uh, easier. Uh, right, oftentimes I see startups kind of stumbling already in that first uh, phase, and uh, but once they um, once they get in, uh, then the process needs tends to be a lot easier from then on. Great. Jao, thanks a lot for being with us and thanks a lot for your insight, especially this uh, last part also for the startup. Uh, I, I really believe it's very useful, uh, useful for them. So thanks again. Thank you, Francesca. It was really a pleasure. And thanks a lot to our audience for joining this episode. Please remember to keep follow us on all streaming platforms and all social media channels. I'm Francesca Liberti and see you all next week with another episode of Breaking Banks Europe. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.